part one and part two of a series that I feel like God wants me to share with everyone as we uh, are in the next couple of weeks. Uh, This chapter in the book of Exodus, chapter 14, we'll be looking at uh, part of it today and then next week, the second part. Um, The the passage today is going to give us more, hopefully, a perspective of how we should view this, what I'm calling the Red Sea Road. And then next week, we're going to, part two, look more deeply into how do we respond. So how do we think about it, and how does God want us to think about those opportunities of those Red Sea roads that we have in our life? And next week, how does he call us to respond? As we observe and look through uh, our text and notice how God's people dealt with this in in a very significant way. You know, during my time away these past several weeks, as many of you know, I was reflecting and praying and seeking the Lord on uh, what he was wanting to reveal to myself, my family, our our elders, and our church. And I spent most of my time in the scriptures, pretty much. Uh, But there was one book uh, that my wife suggested that I read. She had read it. And it's a little book called The Red Sea Rules by Robert J. Morgan. And uh, I encourage you to take time if you have uh, an opportunity and get one of these little books. Uh, You can order online anywhere. And um, it's a great book uh, that I think many of these thoughts um, from the scriptures are summarized very well as uh, Mr. Morgan writes this this little treatise. So um, as I read it, it really ministered to me, and I want to encourage you to consider that for yourself as well. But um, as I thought about these two two, uh, sermons... They're really from my heart in, in many ways of what I am going through right now and where I've been the past several weeks. Oddly enough, I really feel like the path that I am now on and the path that Christ community is on are parallel paths that are very similar right now. What I'm experiencing personally and what we are experiencing as a church body are parallel paths that are very similar right now as we go, go forward. And so hopefully as I share what I am learning and I'm still, uh, have learned and I'm still learning of what God's Spirit is teaching me, it will be something that we as a church family um, can also grasp what God is wanting us to understand. So let's look at our text, Exodus chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. <clears throat> Verses 1 through 12. As I read God's Word. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pihahirath between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite of Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pihahirath, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, 
Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Let's pray. Father, the words of your people are not unfamiliar to us. Not because of the specific words in Exodus 14, but the sentiment, the heart, the struggle, the despair, the facing of tremendous trials and sufferings and tribulations are familiar to us as your children. Lord, help us to understand these things, your call of faith for us to follow you to trust you regardless of circumstances, to listen to your voice, ignoring all other voices around us. Lord, help us to understand these things anew this very hour. Give us your grace more deeply. Help us understand your gospel more deeply. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can you remember the last time that you were facing something in your life? Maybe it was recently, maybe it was a long time ago, and you knew it was going, when you got there, to be difficult. You anticipated almost for sure once you got to wherever that place was, it was going as best as you could perceive to be a difficult place. I remember back when I was way, way back in high school, and we always used to have to show up for summer practice in football to our, our coach, quote, in shape. You didn't come to summer practice to get in shape. You're supposed to show up in shape. And that's hard for high school players to do because your, your summers are your summers. You want to do other things. And, but we had to show up in shape. And so what was expected of us from the very first day we showed up was everyone went to the track, not the football field, the the track and the coach would say okay line up and we would you know get according to position whatever we played in groups and he's and he blow the whistle and every time we had to run a 110 yard sprint it was 110 yards and he would be yelling out the whole time one two all the way up to 16 seconds you had to cross the line at 110 yards at 16 seconds or you didn't accomplish the goal and you had to do that 16 times with a 30-second rest between each 110-yard sprint. Basically, you were sprinting a mile, 1,760 yards. And if you didn't do it and you missed one, then you had to stop and you were out and you had to come back the next day and do it again until finally you did it as you went through summer practice. And that was the expectation. It was brutal. It's the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. Ever. And I, you know, played sports and stuff for a long time. So, <clears throat> but I knew when I, when I arrived, it was going to be a difficult thing. You know, physical challenges, but there are many other things we face, obviously, in our lives. Things that are much more at stake. Um, we face possibly job difficulties. Maybe we're anticipating, you're anticipating being laid off. Or you're anticipating something happening with 
a family member, a child, maybe your parent, maybe there's someone in your family right now that has been given um, by the doctor's notice regarding their health and what's going on with them. And you're, you're looking ahead at the days ahead and thinking, Lord, this is going, it already is, but it's going to be even more difficult. Israel was facing something very difficult. A challenge for them, right? in front of where they were. You see, up to this point in Exodus 14, Exodus 1 through 13, you know the story in case you don't. Quick summary, God called Moses, of course, to go. Go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Of course, reluctantly he went as he finally arrived. Ten times with the plagues over and over, Pharaoh said, yes, I'll do it, and then he relented. Yes, I'll do it, and he changed his mind. Yes, I'll do that, and he changed his mind until finally when the firstborns were killed. He said, just leave and get out of here. They did, and they fled. On the way out, of course, they consecrated their firstborn. They consecrated it to the Lord in worship of what he had done. They had the Passover celebration, uh, understanding fully what God had done for them by calling them out of slavery. But then they come as they're traveling, and they're not far out of Egypt when Pharaoh says, hmm, I think we've done something we shouldn't have done here. And he turns his mind again towards going after the Israelites. The first thought that I see in our text today is that God has you exactly where he desires you to be. Whatever's going on in your life right now, as you sit here and hear my voice, whether it's wonderful, blissful life, you don't have really any major care in the world. And if that's the case, I want to speak to you after the service, please. Because I really want to be encouraged by you. Or there is some significant trial, struggle, tribulation, suffering, whether your own person or someone close to you, and you have that burden, you're carrying that upon your shoulders in your heart right this very morning. Wherever you are, God has you exactly right now where he desires for you to be. You're not in the position you're in by coincidence, by happenstance. There is no thing as luck Or a coincidence with God. There just isn't. Every single detail of your life and my life is in what we call God's sovereign providences. He is absolutely all-loving, all-knowing. And his providence covers everything that we experience. The difficulties as well as the victories and the blessings God has you exactly where he desires you to be. Look at verse 2 when the Lord called and spoke to Moses. Now, get this. He's speaking to Moses. He's not speaking to the whole people of Israel at this point. He calls to Moses and he says to Moses, Moses, tell the Israelites this, to turn back and encamp near Pyrrhus between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite of Baal Zephon. Now, I went and tried to do my map, uh, historical biblical map searches on these places. And there actually, as I read, are more than one place called 
Belzephon. There's more than one Migdol. There's, and in the, in the area of northern Egypt and east of there, as you're heading towards the uh, Sinai Peninsula, and you have the, the major two bodies of water, the Sea of uh, Aquaba, um, and, you, and you have these waters, and exactly where they crossed the Red Sea, which is also the Sea of Reeds, as it's known, is not exactly known. Exactly. But we do know, obviously it was, the sea that they were told to go to. Here's what we know. God gave explicit instructions to Moses to the Israelites as to where God desired for the Israelites to set up camp for that night. And he knew that the Egyptians were on their heels. We know that from our text very clearly. In fact, look what he says in verse 2. He says, tell the Israelites to do what? Turn back. (laughs) Now, instinctively, if I'm an Israelite, I'm going away from Egypt where I was. Because if anything, I know they're back there. I don't know if they're coming after me. But 10 times, the guy changed his mind. So chances of them probably maybe coming after me are pretty high. So I'm going this way. And I'm not going back. And yet it said, God said, turn back and camp right here. A specific place. You can't get more specific. They knew where this was exactly. And that is where God told them to go. This specific location. We do know the location would have placed Israel, God's people, in a very vulnerable and precarious position to camp there for the night. We do know that. They would have had the Red Sea immediately in front of them. The Egyptian army behind them with all the chariots and Pharaoh and his horses. And the desert and the marshes, Sea of Reeds, all around them. Not an easy, quick, let's go left or right and get out of the way of the army coming. You just can't do that. They really had no choice. They were in a place where God knew that they had to trust him. See, God put them there in the place that he knew they had to trust him and not look anywhere else. The fact that God directed Israel with specific instructions which placed them in that vulnerable position tells us that God is always in control. He always knows what he is doing well before we do. And he sees everything all at once that is happening that's what makes him God. He knows everything. All is, he is not bound by time. We are. He is not within time. He created time. He's be outside of time. And so he sees all time, past, present, future, all at the same instant. There is nothing that is beyond his understanding and knowledge. He knows what is best for his glory and for our good. Every single time. He's no, he knows what's best for his glory and our good. <clears throat> you know, so often we struggle getting this understanding backwards. Do we not? I know I do. We get it backwards. We think that the normative experience for a Christian, a child of God, is life should be trouble-free. Should it not? I'm doing what God says. I'm living my life to follow what God's word says. I'm trying to be as obedient as I can. Sure, I'm still sinful and I, I mess up now and then. But for the most part, I'm really sticking on the road of what God wants for me to follow him. And so I think I, you know, deserve, Lord, a little 
feedback here, a little reward of a trouble-free life, a suffering-free life, relatively free. Yet the testimony of Scripture doesn't seem to share that perspective. If you read through the Scriptures, you see in all kinds of places that is not it at all. John 16, Jesus told the disciples, I've told you these things, Jesus says, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. You will have trouble, Jesus told his disciples. Jesus tells us, in this world we will have trouble. This world's broken, and we live in it. We're broken. So you have broken people living in a broken world. There's going to be brokenness. There's going to be trouble. There's going to be difficulties. There's going to be challenges. First Peter, Peter writes these words in the midst of the church going through great suffering. Friends, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. You know, when we face unexpected events, crisis, challenges that we didn't think were going to be there, six weeks ago, I did not think I would be in the position I am personally right now, trusting God for the future for myself and my family. I did not have that expectation. And yet, God has revealed it so clearly. When we have those unexpected things come, we have to choose to believe that God has, has either placed us in that position directly, or he has allowed us to be in that position for our good and his glory. We have to believe that. If we don't, what do we have to believe? Only despairing belief. If we draw any other conclusion, it makes God less than who he really is. And it actually places us in a position of needing to be more than we really are or ever could be. Unless we put our faith and trust him. Verse 8, look at what it says. The Lord, it says, Harden the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites. You see, God told Moses up in verse 4 that he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. In verse 4, he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And then in verse 8, he did it. Why? It says, so that Pharaoh would pursue the freed captives of Israel. God hardened Pharaoh's heart again. So he would go after and place his very children in a vulnerable position of absolute dependence on him. God did that. That wasn't by chance. That was by design. God's specific design. You know, many times in Scripture we see a child of God experience trials or hardships for their good and for God's redemptive purposes. And God wastes Nothing. God wastes nothing. Something's happened in your life that's a tragedy. Maybe it was when you were a child. Maybe it was just three years ago. Maybe it was this year. 
God doesn't waste anything. Whatever you have experienced, even if you just became a believer, you've just come to know the Lord in recent months or years, and you're older in life, and you look back on all the years that you did not know the Lord, and you may think, if I would have only known the Lord for those years, then this stopped right there. No, that's not how it goes. Because the very experiences that you even had as one who did not know Christ are in the providence of God and are used by him for his glory now. And there are ministry opportunities and experience that you have as a believer now that God is using and can use and will use you for that you would have not been ever, ever able to do if you had not spent those years without him as your personal Lord and Savior. Even those days God uses for his glory and his good, your good. If God called me to plant this church just so that one person would come to know him in 13 years, it was absolutely worth it. And I know some of you that are here that came to know Jesus in the past 13 years. Our temptation, though, is to believe that if we try something and we fail, that was a waste of time. And it's not. Nothing is a waste in the providence of God. Remember Joseph and his story? What a wonderful story, Genesis 37 through Genesis 50. He's being sold into slavery by his brothers. Of course, his very own brothers then thrown into prison. But God was working his plan in Joseph's life and through Joseph's life. Not just in him, but through him. And eventually his position of power there in Egypt allowed him not only to save his own personal family, great pain and hardship in the famine, but then all of God's people as they came to be supplied and not receive great famine in their own people. Application. I'm going to go ahead and talk about the elephant in the room, okay? That's right. I only got a couple more sermons left here, so you're going to hear it. All right? The gloves are off, all right? Some people may be thinking, <clears throat> and from the world's perspective, Christ Community Church, this ship is starting to sink. It's going down. I've even heard some discouraging words from some of you regarding the past several months and what's happening in our church, and you're discouraged. I understand. Trust me, I know how it can be discouraging. We've had people leave. We've gotten smaller a little bit in size. Our, our resources, people resources, financial resources maybe aren't what they need to be right now. <clears throat> and so you are starting to despair. <clears throat> That's not what God desires. In fact, if the world looks at something like that <clears throat> and they say, that ship is sinking. That's the very thing that God wants us to look at and go, no, the foolishness of men is the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Big steps of faith can seem very foolish in the eyes of men. I know, three, four times in my life already, in our married life, we have made decisions to follow and trust God. 
to leave things that the world would say, are you crazy? Why would you do that? Not knowing what the next day held. And every time we knew God called us and we trusted him and we followed him, every single time blessing awaited. Every single time we saw him provide in ways that was absolutely amazing. Our faith could not have been built in any other way than the way that he called us to. Had we tried to take a left turn or a right turn, tried to go around what he was calling, we could have done that. And God still would have been gracious, as he always is. He would have still been merciful. He would have still provided for us. He's always promised to. And yet, we would have missed out on the blessing of our faith grow and deepen and the relationship with him become more than it was prior to that. See, that's what God has called us to. That's what he called Israel to. God has exactly where he desires for you to be. He, Christ's community is exactly where God wants us to be today. He doesn't want us to stay here, but he has us exactly where he wants us to be Sunday, November 17th. But the second is this. God's purposes are fulfilled through our struggles. His purposes are fulfilled through our struggles. You know, God's purposes are not fulfilled because of our struggles. And they're not in spite of our struggles. And they're not around us struggling. Now, God sometimes calls us to walk by faith through a struggle. Go right through it. That's what he did with the Israelites. He put them in a position where they couldn't go through the marshes or the desert. They couldn't turn back because of their enemy. And all they had was the sea in front. Raging waters that would drown them in a second. With all the children, all the animals, all the people. How in the world, Lord, this can't happen. It's impossible. No way. We're stuck and you've placed us here. This cannot be any worse. That's what I'd be thinking if I was Israelites sitting right there. Psalm 77, 19 and 20. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters. Though your footprints were not seen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The psalmist clearly says it was through the sea, through the waters. Though, Lord, your footprints I couldn't see, it was through, not around. The psalmist is saying that God's way for Israel was through the sea, not around it. In other words, sometimes in our life, God's purposes can only be fulfilled by going through a hardship, a trial, a testing, a suffering. Sometimes God is most glorified when we are being most purified. Sometimes going forward feels like you're actually losing ground. When you're going forward in faith, it sometimes feels like you're literally losing ground and going backwards. Several years ago when uh, I was younger and my dad was a fisherman and he would take us out in the boat and we'd go fishing. And 
being a hard-headed teenager like I was sometimes, I would say, I'll do it, you know, I, Dad would try to give me instructions about throwing the baits out and getting them back, and I said, I, I've got it, you know, and we were going under trees and trying to get where the logs were in the shade, and you're trying to, trying to go where the fish were, and, and so I just kept trying to uh, go where probably I didn't have expertise of throwing and casting these baits, and I would get caught in the trees all the time. It was so frustrating. And so instead of doing what I was supposed to do, I would start just yanking on the fishing pole, trying to pull it out of the, of the sticks or the, or the limb. So one time I started yanking really hard, and Dad said, don't do that. I said, I've got it. I've got it. Be quiet. And I just pulled it straight back. That bait flew out about 100 miles an hour from that tree limb and came right at my head. I turned and took my elbow up, and it caught right in my elbow. But see, it went past the barb. It wouldn't come back out. There was only one way I was going to get that bait out of my elbow, was to take the hook and push it forward through and poke another hole in my elbow, cut off the end of the barb, and then pull it back out. You weren't going to get it out any other way. So that's what we did. We had to go forward before we could go backward. And it was not, there was no anesthesia either out there. Uh, on the boat. So sometimes it feels like we're going backward, but we have to go forward. Think about this. So often when we face a life crisis, an unexpected circumstance, what is our immediate desire? Relief, isn't it? Something goes wrong. Even something small during your day, something's not going right at work, you're like, oh, if I could just fix this. We always seek relief as quickly as possible. I do. I want it to stop. Whatever it is that's causing me struggle, pain, heartache, just relief to stop the crisis, fix the problem, stop the pain. We circle our wagons. We focus on ourselves. Our decisions are often based on self-preservation. So quickly we go there. And the question that often comes to my mind, and it came to my mind these past three months, Lord, how long will you let this continue? How long do you want me to stay in this place? How long? How long? But that was the wrong question. Instead, God calls us to make him the object of our desires in all circumstances. Good, bad, difficult, or easy. He desires for his glory to be our greatest desire, his glory. He desires that the question be, Lord, how do you want me to continue in this journey you've placed me? That's what the question, how do you want me to step forward in faith? Because I don't know how. I don't want it to continue, but I want what you want more than my relief. I want your glory more than my relief. So, tell me, how to step the next step because I don't know. And he'll show you. He will meet you there as you step towards him in faith. Psalm 50. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Call upon the Lord and he'll deliver. And we'll glorify him when that happens. In the garden, Jesus went through a tremendous agony as he wrestled with his pending sacrifice. Not only was he about to face the most excruciating, torturous death known to mankind, but he also knew that the rejection from his own father as he took upon our sin, he would receive 
upon that cross. So in his flesh, he said, Father, let this cup pass. I don't want to be in that position. And yet, his words were, may your will be done, Father. Not my will, but your will. May your glory be first, not my struggle in this pain. Again, in verse 4, we see in our text, and the Egyptians, it says, will know that I am the Lord. God said, I'll, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart and I'll pursue them. I'll gain glory for myself and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. What is that saying? What is God saying to Moses? This is, this is, this is what's so interesting. Think about it. The unbelieving Egyptians were chasing after God's people. They came, though, to fear the Lord and acknowledge his rightful place because God's people were placed in a position of need and vulnerability. You see, the Egyptians knew it was the, it was the one and true God that provided protection for his people, but they had to be put in a place of very difficult vulnerability and need and dependence for the unbelieving Egyptians to see the glory of God and the power of God at work. God sometimes places you and me as his people in positions of vulnerability and utter dependence so that those who do not know him around us that watch your life, they will see the power and the might of your Savior because of watching you go through it. When you're going through it and you're willing to share it and they see that, there's nothing that can, that can explain that except the very power and presence of God. And that impacts the heart of one who does not know the Lord. God uses it that way. He uses that. Often as Christians, we try to hide our struggles and our fears from an unbelieving world around us. Do we not? If you don't, then you're not like me. We try to hide it very well from everyone, even in the church and outside the church. We don't want people to see the mess, the ugliness, the difficulties, the brokenness. We think we need to put on the appearance of a trouble-free Christian with Jesus all the way through. But when we do that, we are actually working against the power of the gospel. We're working against it. This week, my neighbor was sitting outside with his kids. And so, uh, I know him fairly well and... You know, not real well, but well enough. So I went over to him, and, you know, it's in the middle of the day, and uh, I'm, I'm there talking to him. And, and I said, well, I said, um, you know, he knows I'm a pastor in, in our church and all that. And I said, um, this past week I uh, announced to the congregation that I'm, I'm resigning. And he goes, really? I go, yep. And just gave him a couple thoughts. And he said, well, um, I'm in a similar situation myself. I go, really? He goes, yeah, I've been struggling with income this way. And he goes, I've got a job. He's kind of a contract worker. And he says, I got like two or three months here at the beginning of the year. But after that, I've got nothing. He goes, it's been getting worse the past five years. And so right now, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know how we're going to get income. I don't. And he started just sharing his heart. Started revealing what was going on in his, his life. Come to find out the neighbor right next door to me, not across the street, is stepping out of his position of many, many years and he's completely stepping out, trusting that his life is going to 
be provided for. So already God is orchestrating opportunities of talking with those around where I live just because of what he's doing. You know, if you're willing to share what God's doing in your life, you'll be amazed how other people will connect to it, will listen to it, and it will minister to them in significant ways. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes these words, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When we are weak, it's that very moment when we are strong in the Lord. Which is the final thought that I see in our passage today. Depending on Jesus brings greater freedom, not hardship. When we depend on Jesus, that's when freedom actually comes more fully than the actual hardship that we're experiencing. The Israelites were only looking at their immediate situation and they were trusting in what they could see ahead. The raging sea, the enemy behind, unprotected desert and marshes, difficulty to traverse all around them. But verses 11 and 12, look at what they said to Moses. They said, Moses... Was it because there weren't any graves, in e- any graves in Egypt that you brought us here to die in the desert? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say, leave us alone and let us stay in Egypt? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. The, Israelite, uh, the Israelites saw the army of the Egyptians and they were disheartened. They were disheartened. And they would... And so, obviously, they're like, you know, you put us here. This is your fault. They began blaming. They began doubting that where they were was where they needed to be. You know, when we're walking the Red Sea Road in our life, when you're walking your Red Sea Road, it's hard to see sometimes on that road God's goodness. Isn't it? Sometimes it is. It's hard to see just how he will provide. If you could see how he will provide, then it really wouldn't take much faith, now would it? Because it's sight, and you see it. We're tempted to think, if I do, I'll just go back to my old habits. I'll go back to my old life patterns. I'll go back to the environment I used to have that was familiar. It would be better for me than where God has put me right now. I'm sure you've thought that. But think about what God's people were saying here. What were the Israelites saying to Moses when their hearts were struggling so much in verse 11 and 12? Here's where they were. They were saying that they would rather remain enslaved. They'd rather be slaves, oppressed for the rest of their life, than to live freely and the blessings and provision of an all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving Father. That's what they were saying. That's what they were struggling with. Stay enslaved. At least we we have food, water, and we're not going to be killed. Or be free and trust the Lord. You know, I've always said, as long as I've sought to preach the word in this pulpit, that the Christian life 
is not about improvement. Many people think it is. I need to be a better Christian. Where's that in the Bible? No, it's not about improvement. Being a follower of Jesus is about dependence. It's about growing in dependence, not improvement. Because as you depend on him more, then you abide in him more. And he abides in you more. And as that happens, your life of obedience just is transformed. And you're not trying to improve yourself. It's not about that. It's about dependence. You know, I've always said that, but now God kind of called my hand in the past few weeks on just saying it. Now he's actually said, you have to trust me now. You have to depend on me. And so I'm putting everything on the line to trust God again. Thirteen years ago, I arrived to what the world would have said as very much, there's nothing here. There was no people. There was no church. There was no name for a church. There was nothing when we arrived. Just me, my three one-year-old girls, and my wife. Thirteen years ago. Well, thirteen days ago, I made a decision to leave and go again to what the world would say is foolish and there's nothing to go to right now. But you know what? It's the only choice to make. And it's an amazing thing to experience trusting the Lord in faith and being where he wants you to be. That's where we need to be as a church body. Trusting God day to day, following him, depending on him, being obedient to him in faith and not worrying about what will happen a month, two months, six months, a year from now. God is building his church. He promises to do that. We have to trust him. He's placed us in this specific place as a church in his providence. It is not a coincidence. It is not by chance. So let's trust him and let's step forward in faith together. Pray with me.